Good morning. Um, many of you would have come in this morning quite excited to uh, continue our series in Acts. Uh, and I'm sorry to confess that this morning we're actually interrupting that after only two weeks. The reason is that we received a question um, about six months ago. It gives you an impression of how fast the teaching team work on these things. Um, for those of you who don't know, there's a mechanism on our website to submit questions. And if we sort of deem it appropriate to speak to those questions in a Sunday sermon, um, we do that. Uh, I don't know who submitted the question. It's, it's anonymous, so don't try and figure out who it is from what I say this morning. Nor will I actually go into detail about what the question is, except to say that it threw open this topic of how you deal with the sin of your husband or wife. How do you deal in a marriage with the sin of your husband or wife? And uh, because there are plenty of marriages represented here at Hope, and because all of us sin, um, we thought it would be relevant to speak on that today. The, uh, the American author Ambrose Bierce once defined a Christian as one who believes that the New Testament is a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbours. And it's a, it's a sad reflection on us as Christians, isn't it, that so often we can read the scriptures or we can hear a sermon and apply it to anyone, everyone, except ourselves. And that's never so true that when you hear a sermon on marriage, so easy as the application is heading straight for you to take a sidestep, let it land on your wife, and, uh, and think about how she should be applying these things. And so I just want to encourage you that right from the top today, try and keep the focus on yourself and trust that your husband or wife will be doing the same thing. When it comes to um, the Bible's teaching on marriage, actually most of what the Bible has to teach us on marriage is not contained in the verses that are directed specifically to husbands and wives. Um, you will notice that I actually cut off the reading just before the only verses in Colossians that reference wives and husbands. Um, it's not because I'm ashamed of them. Um, and I'll prove that now by reading them to you. So uh, Colossians 3 verse 18 just after our reading, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In verses like that, you get very crucial distinctions about how our roles in marriage are different, husbands and wives. Husbands, love, don't be harsh. Wives, submit. But you notice there that Paul only gives one sentence to wives and one sentence to husbands. And the reason that he can be so brief is because actually most of what will make you a good husband or a good wife has already been said in verses 1 to 17. That is, if you are a good Christian, if you are growing as a Christian, you will also be a good Christian husband or a good Christian wife. And therefore, most of what um, makes a marriage, a Christian marriage strong is not necessarily the differences between husbands and wives, but actually the things that we share in common. And so that's going to be our focus this morning. All of that means that um, if you find yourself here and you are unmarried today, um, you, you would expect I'm going to find a way to not let you off the hook either. Uh, and so all you need to do for this sermon to be relevant to you is just remove the lens of marriage, okay? There should be plenty in here that is applicable just to you as a Christian. But when it comes to dealing with sin in your spouse, I think we all lean toward one of two solutions. One of two solutions. Um, some of you are very, very direct 
and you go for the fix the sinner solution. So if you have a husband and your husband uh, struggles with the sin of laziness and he's sitting on the couch eating chips and you just tell him, stop doing that. You need to fix yourself. You need to change. And that can actually be quite a helpful thing. Marriage is a good forum for finding out your faults. And yet, if that's the main gear that you use, in the end, you're going to have quite a graceless marriage, a nitpicking kind of marriage, and there's always going to be one more thing to fix. But then on the other hand, some of you are more of a fix-yourself kind of solution to your uh, spouse's sin. So your husband's there, he's, he's eating his chips, he's on the couch, and you think, I really shouldn't, I really shouldn't confront him with this. You know, actually, I need to work on myself. I just need to be more forgiving and I need to show more grace. And that's a wonderful disposition to have. And yet, what if your husband actually does need to change? And what if you end up swallowing something, absorbing something over years and years and decades and decades that really, actually, you should have just told him and he should have just changed? Uh, that can lead to a marriage in which you experience a lot of resentment. What I love about this passage in Colossians is it actually affirms both of those approaches, both of those solutions to confronting sin in your marriage, but it baptizes both of them in Christ. So what we're going to find here this morning in Colossians 3, 1 to 17 are three um, practices that you, as husbands and wives, I want to preach this in a fairly comprehensive way, not just, you know, if you're sinned against, but to preach to your entire marriage. You, as husbands and wives... Three practices that you need in order to deal with sin in your marriage. I'll list them briefly and then we'll go into each one. Firstly, a mind that meditates on your new identity in Christ. Secondly, a murderous posture toward your own sin. And thirdly, a gracious posture toward your spouse's sin. So let's begin. Firstly, a mind that meditates on your new identity in Christ. If you've closed your Bibles, please open them back up again to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you didn't bring your Bibles, shame on you. I just saw a few people sort of um, looking for something that's not there. Um, 3, 1 and 2. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It's hard to overstate the significance of uh, the mind in the Apostle Paul's thought. Uh, you see this really, really clearly in the book of Romans, his sort of his tour de force, his, his great explanation of, of humanity and the gospel. And in Romans, he actually says that humanity's descent into sin begins in the mind. Have you noticed that before in Romans 1.21? He says, although they knew God, so we knew God in our minds, he says, they did not acknowledge him as God or give thanks to him, and here's the key phrase, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then after that, he goes into the sinful behaviours that follow. They were disobedient to parents. They, uh, they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. They were foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. But it starts in the mind. And so as a, uh, as a balance to that, when he comes to talk about how we're actually then transformed as Christians, when we're new creations, we're also transformed firstly through the mind. Uh, most of you will, will have this verse committed to memory, Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. And then he will go on to give commands about this new behaviour. 
And so here in Colossians, we also see that meditation is crucial in overcoming sin. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul has been talking about other ways in which people try and overcome their sin in the world. And he's actually going at the classic one there, and that is rulemaking. So the classic one that we all go for is uh, when we want to change, we write a list of the good things we want to do, and we write a list of the bad things we don't want to do, mentally probably, and then we do the good things and we don't do the bad things. And Paul is categorical in his dismissal of that at the end of chapter 2. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 23. He said, these, these kinds of rules, these ways of overcoming sin, he says, they have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, he says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so when you come into chapter 3 of Colossians, you have this question ringing in your mind. Well, what is it then, Paul? What is it that actually leads to the stopping of the indulgence of the flesh? How is it that Christians overcome sin? And he says that it starts by refusing to be a passive spectator of your thoughts. It starts by taking control of your thoughts. And he says specifically, it starts by taking your thoughts and setting them on heaven. So, a question for you, husbands and wives. What does your practice of meditation look like? Do you have one? Meditation is distinct from doing morning devotions. Morning devotions have got a lot of good, good press in the church for, for 20 or 30 years. But meditation is what happens when... In the morning, you close your Bible and you go out into your day. And the question that you need to be asking yourself is, how are you bringing God's truth out of the pages of this scripture and into your daily thoughts? Because that's what Paul's telling us to do here. He's not telling us to have quiet times. He's telling us to take the truth out of these pages and into our daily lives. Now, I think the most straightforward way of doing that is just memorizing scripture. Right? So you just... You, you learn it, you have it in your head, you take it into, into the day and you think about it. I think that's the best way of doing this. But whatever way you choose, you just need to find a way. To find a way to meditate. So Paul says, There are to be no earthly-minded marriages where to meditate instead on our life above. Now that's extremely vague to say set your minds on things above. I think Paul knows that and that's why he gives us some specifics in verses 3 and 4. Have a look there. For you have died, Paul says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What he tells us to meditate upon is the past, present, and future of our identity with Christ. Past, present, and future of our identity with Christ. He begins there in verse 3, you have died. We should think about death often, um, not just our coming death, closer for some than others, uh, not just Christ's death for us in the past, true for all of us, but we are to think about our death with Christ in the past. Uh, Romans chapter 6 serves as a kind of long commentary on this verse where it, it talks about all the implications of, of teasing that out. And it gives us some insight into what Paul is trying to get us to think about here. I think what he's saying, and, and let me quote from Romans 6, I think it's verse 2. He just says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul's idea here is that as we think about our death with Christ in the past, we're to actually recognize that our old self no longer has any influence on our behavior. 
We, we can't make excuses about, well, that's just who I am. You know, that's, this is the sins against me or the sins I've committed. They just follow me around. No, Paul says you've died to that and therefore you can change. You can change. And I think that's a really, really helpful thing for us to keep in mind because some of the really common advice about marriage is that you should go into marriage not expecting each other to change. That was something that Jazz and I were told quite often, don't expect them to change. And yet, we're only five or six years in, we actually found, find that we've both changed in really profound ways, in, in ways for the good. Now, you can't predict exactly what those changes are going to be, but you will change as Christians. And therefore, don't tell each other in a marriage. I think one of the most devastating things that can happen in a marriage is when you start to tell each other that you can't change. You've been doing that for so long, for a year, for 10 years, for 30 years, you will never change. No, Paul teaches us here to say to one another, actually, you've died to that. You've died to that sin. You can change. So, you've died. And then the present Uh, Verse 3 again, your life, he says, is hidden with Christ in God. So the old you is dead and this is the new you. It's entangled with Christ in God. It's hidden with Christ in God, your true life. There are um, really practical effects of how you choose to refer to yourself as a Christian, both out loud and in your mind. A lot of us are really prone to, as good Protestants, we believe in justification by faith alone, we start to refer to ourselves mainly as forgiven sinners. I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. I'm a sinner who is forgiven. The danger of that is that if that's your main identity, every effort at holiness is going to seem contrary to nature. I'm just a sinner and I'm trying to be holy. And that's why in the New Testament, Christians are only referred to as sinners twice. Uh, Only ever an individual and, and Paul. It's just the Apostle Paul talking about himself never collectively of Christians. But what's the word used, I'm sure you know, what's the word used most often about Christians as a group in the New Testament, some 60 times? Saints, saints, holy ones, holy ones. You can see the effect that that has on you, that then you go, actually, I'm holy, so holiness is my native language. Actually, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, the behaviours that are fitting for Christ are actually fitting for me as well. Past, present, and then future. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if we said that our death with Christ makes change possible, this verse says that change is actually inevitable. Did you see that there? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we see in the New Testament that there's something about pondering our coming glory with Christ that leads us to moral transformation right now. The exact same thought is reflected in 1 John 3, 2-3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then he adds this, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As you ponder this coming glory, you will be changed. So all that to say, get a meditation habit. Before you start to confront specific sins in your life, get a good habit of meditation on the death, on your death with Christ, on your hiddenness with Christ, and on your coming glory with Christ. Secondly, second uh, component in a marriage to deal with sin is a murderous posture toward your own sin. Have a look there at verse 5. 
verse 5. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. (coughs) As you start to meditate on your new life in Christ, you recognise that there are certain behaviours and attitudes that are no longer fitting. And now they're, they're not things that come naturally to you, but they're things that you are supposed to start to see as a pest to exterminate, as a kind of cancer to destroy, as a, uh, an unwelcome guest that you're supposed to shoot first and then question later. That's Paul's idea here, put it to death. And you see that um, he then gives us two lists of these sins, and if one of them doesn't describe your battles, the other one will. Firstly, the sins of the body, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see there that Paul is going from the surface level to the heart. Sexual immorality is all sorts of sinful, practical behaviours, sexual sin. But then he traces all of that right back to covetousness and idolatry. And the idea here is you are supposed to destroy this sin wherever it appears and to whatever extent it appears. So some of us have our favourite ways of dealing with sexual sin, right? You have the, the person who really champions accountability and you know, get a few friends together and talk to them. You'll have people who say, just chuck away your phone, chuck away your laptop, whatever is causing sin. And those are great and we should do them. And then we need to trace out, actually, is there something deeper going on here? Is my uh, struggle with sexual sin not just a surface level issue of not enough accountability? Does it actually go back to a kind of covetousness? Actually, I want what I don't have. And that covetousness, Paul says, is actually idolatry. I am, uh, I'm not happy with what God's given me in life. I'm not happy with the wife that God has given me. I want more. And so we need to find other methods of putting those things to death. Prayer, fasting, seeking the Lord. And just to come back to that idea, he does say put it to death. Later on in verse 12, he's going to contrast this by saying put on then as God's chosen ones. That's quite you know, nice, um, fairly gentle language. But he doesn't say here, put off sexual immorality. He says, put it to death. This is a violent thing. It's a merciless thing. It's a decisive thing. And he gives us a horrifying motivation. Verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I want to be careful in the next thing that I say. I do wonder how this one's going to go down. Uh, Women, wives... If your natural reaction to your husband's sexual sin is anger, that is right. That is fitting. It is fitting because it is the way that God feels about it. Christians are not supposed to be neutral about sin. We are supposed to hate sin. We're supposed to be angry about sin. I I had a customer, um, I clean windows for a living, and uh, she was married, she's a Christian lady, and she had a few kids. And I went around, last time I went around, um, it, everything was just a little bit different. The house was a little bit quieter. And it came to light fairly awkwardly and fairly quickly that her husband had just left her for another woman. Um, and it was, it was just a horrifying thing. It had only been a couple of weeks. And she got around to talking about how she was meeting with a friend, another female friend, and reading the scriptures to encourage her at this time. And I said, what are you reading? Because I thought, you know, what... I don't know, maybe you go to some stuff about grace or forgiveness. Maybe you go to some stuff about, I don't know, just sort of restoring your soul, some psalms. She said she was reading the book of Hosea. 
Um, and for those of you who know the Old Testament, Hosea is an awful book. <laughs> I mean, it's a really hideous book. I, like, I often feel sick as I'm reading it because it's actually a depiction of this poor prophet Hosea who has to marry a prostitute who is going to continue to cheat on him and leave him. And that is a symbol of uh, the people of God's rebellion uh, against God and they're going after other idols. I said, how's that going for you? <laughs> and she said, that's actually, it's really, really encouraging because I'm recognising that God hates adultery more than I do. And that was actually leaning into the anger of God there meant that her anger wasn't going out of control because she's going, actually, the wrath of God is coming for these things. Now, some of you may at this point, um, if you're biblically astute, might point out the fact that in just a few verses later in verse 8, Paul is also going to say that we need to put anger to death. And then in verse 12, he's going to tell us, or verse 13 rather, that forgiveness is commanded. So let me answer those briefly. Firstly, there is a kind of anger that is earthly. It's self-centered, it's uncontrolled, it's malicious. It's what we're going to deal with in a second. But there's another kind of anger that is heavenly, that is a reflection of God's own anger. And that's why in Ephesians 4.26, anger is commanded for Christians. Be angry and do not sin. So there is a kind of non-sinful anger. It's why in, uh, in Revelation, Jesus commends the churches for hating what he hates. There is a kind of righteous hatred. And as for forgiveness, yes, we are to forgive. And we're going to get to that as well. That is crucial. But God doesn't forgive our sin by saying our sin is no big deal. He doesn't forgive our sin by saying you couldn't help it. It's the male mind. You know, it's your biology. You're a victim. No, God forgives us in actually by firstly being righteously angry against it and then by not holding it against us. So, now to sins of the mouth. Hopefully that's been clarified. Talk to me uh, afterwards if it, if it hasn't for you. Now the sins of the mouth, verse 8. He says, uh, Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Now he's going from the general to the specific. You see that it starts quite broad and goes to a sort of pointy edge there. I think we're most vulnerable to this list of sins during marital arguments. Uh, I know none of you have them here, um, but say hypothetically if you did, this might be the kind of place in which these sins would start to rear their ugly heads because we can start to see um, fights as kind of a, um, a sovereign territory in our marriage, a sovereign territory in which God's law no longer applies. This is a place in which God's commands actually no longer apply because I actually need to, I need to get my point across and sometimes I'm going to need to use some tactics in order to do that. So I want to ask you, Paul, Paul's going to end this section in verse 17 by saying, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When you fight, do you fight in the name of the Lord Jesus? Because that command holds right there as much as anywhere else. Do you fight in a way in which you can give thanks to the Lord as a result? So we've got to examine our tactics in arguments. Do you, do you give in to a kind of name calling? Uh, do you slander and misrepresent the other person? Do you use obscenity? I want to say that a real practical way maybe of uh, avoiding some of this stuff is just by choosing a good time to argue. Um, we were given some 
I'm sorry if any of you gave me this advice. Um, we were given some bad advice heading into marriage. Uh, and it was from actually that passage in Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and do not sin. And then it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. This is some common advice that's given. And the way it's given is to say, don't um, go to sleep before the argument is resolved. Which works brilliantly, except for when the argument comes up at 11.30pm. Um, and actually, as you get tireder and tireder, more and more weary, actually the anger starts to come out more and more. It's actually a terrible application. I was talking to one of my friends, uh, recently divorced friends about this. He said, I think that advice may have killed my marriage. Um, so that is actually a, a recipe for misunderstanding. The application of this is actually to uh, not let the sun go down on your anger, not to not let the sun go down on your fight. There is a way of actually taking the anger away, saying we have a conflict here, we need to sort it out, let's do it when we're clear-headed. He goes on in verse 9 to add this one. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. We could see that command against um, lying to one another as sort of an extension of this second list. But I wonder whether Paul is maybe trying to guard against something here. Because actually the best way to uh, disobey what Paul has said in terms of putting these sins to death is not by openly walking in them, openly walking in sexual immorality and anger and wrath, but actually to just lie about them and just say that you've defeated them and to send them underground instead. Some of you have done that. Some of you are, are sitting on some significant unconfessed sin in your marriage. Some of you are playing kind of a, I mean, a pretty ridiculous game in which you think actually the, the price is too high to confess and so I'd actually just rather feel guilty for the rest of my life. I want to encourage you, put those things to death by bringing them out in the open. I, um, I have a handout to help us with that. People often talk about confessing sin, but they don't talk about how to do it. So a couple of years ago, I um, put together a little step-by-step, -step, eight points on how to confess sin, quite practically. I'll hand those to you afterwards. It may be helpful to you, it may not, but if you just have a hard time getting over the hump, give that a read and see if it helps. Um, but when it comes to putting sin to death, this is where the fix the sinner solution really comes in. We can help each other with this in marriage, can't we? We can help one another put each other's sins to death by pointing things out to each other, by having the guts to sort of say, actually, this is an area of sin in your life that I've noticed, and I think that you need to deal with it. We've got to be careful with that because, of course, you can't force anyone to change. This is someone's personal responsibility here. It doesn't say put to death what is earthly in your spouse, which is what some of us are tempted to do at times, but put to death what is earthly in you. And so confront one another in your sin, but keep this ratio in mind, I'd say. Uh, as much as you confront one another, pray for one another more. Try and just keep that in balance. Pray for one another more than you confront one another. Thirdly and finally, third element to deal with sin in your marriage is a gracious posture toward your spouse's sin. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So as you, you meditate on your new identity in Christ, not only do you recognise that certain things are not fitting anymore and need to be put to death, but you also recognise that certain new behaviours and attitudes now sort of light up and you go, actually, these things are fitting for me now. And this is where we come to the, the fix-yourself solution to your spouse's sin. Because no matter how much sin your husband or wife puts to death, there will always be more, right? Those of you who have been married longer can testify. Is that true? Right? There's always more. And so you're always going to need to show grace. And what Paul gives us then, helpfully, are multiple aspects of grace that we are to put on here. He uses the phrase put on because this is not automatic as a Christian. These attributes are not automatic. We must put them on. We won't always feel like doing these things. Paul says, do it anyway. Be deliberate. Make the repeated decision. I've often wondered about that because you might question, well, if I'm doing something when I don't feel like it, isn't that hypocrisy, right? That's something that actually Jesus was very strong against when he came. And in fact, when we use that term in our language, putting it on, when someone's putting something on, they're pretending to be something they're not, right? Is that what we're supposed to do as Christians? Well, no, because what we've already said is that we are putting on not something that we're not, but something that we are. And that's why here Paul reminds us, it's a little mini reminder to meditate. He doesn't just say put these things on as forgiven sinners or something. Put on then as God's chosen ones, verse 12, holy and beloved. This is who you are. And so these things are natural to us as Christians, even though they're not automatic. Natural but not automatic. I want to reflect just for one second on what he tells us about ourselves there. Because for some of you, I am aware of the fact that for some of you in this room, I've been praying for you, you know, just recognising there's so many marriages represented. And for some of you, the sins that have been committed against you in the course of your marriage have actually had a devastating effect on your sense of self. The sins that have been committed against you have actually left you feeling rejected, they've left you feeling unwanted, they've left you feeling defiled. And so we need the gospel. We need the recognition, if we're going to have any hope of putting these things on, we need the recognition that actually, even if I've not experienced that in my marriage, the only person whose opinion actually matters in the universe has chosen me, has loved me with an invincible love, and has called me holy. We need to recognise that. So, what then are we to put on here? I've, um, I've just got a couple of like one-sentence things for each of these. So, as you, as you follow along in verse 12, starting with compassionate hearts, this is kind of a literal-ish translation of what Paul is saying. Put on then, firstly, gut-level sympathetic concern. Gut-level sympathetic concern. Put on, secondly, a willingness to meet practical needs of one another. Thirdly, a deep sense of your own moral littleness. That's humility. Put on restrained and gentle strength. And put on, finally, a long fuse that doesn't blow without warning. We then meet in verse 13, and here's a really crucial word for our 
topic today, we meet in verse 13 a radical call to forgiveness. It's a radical call to forgiveness in verse 13 because Paul is saying that your automatic response to being wronged should be forgiveness. That is the only prerequisite for forgiving your spouse is having something to forgive. You see it there in verse 13. Bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. If you have a complaint, forgive. Now that can be very hard in marriage because we're very good at keeping a mental tally of what one another have done wrong, right? And so you know that he's wronged me 15 times for the two or three times that I've wronged him. And actually his tally is reversed and he thinks that the opposite is going on. And so you can start to look at your marriage and go, actually, I'm always forgiving. How can Paul call me just to automatically forgive when I've been wronged, when I'm always the one forgiving? And there's this horrible imbalance. Well, the answer, Paul says, is that you're looking at the wrong tally sheet. You're looking at the wrong tally sheet. The relationship that you're invited to consider here is not your relationship with your husband, is not your relationship with your wife, but is your relationship with Christ. And so Paul is telling us quite simply to think about how much and to what extent has Christ forgiven me and then to go and forgive your husband or your wife that much. And the more you've been sinned against, therefore, the more you need to think about Christ's forgiveness if you're going to have any shot of showing forgiveness to your spouse. I'm aware as well that forgiveness can be weaponized, and so I want to give a few clarifications. Firstly, forgiveness can't be demanded, it can only be requested. When you come to Christ for forgiveness, you don't demand that he give you grace, you ask that he give you grace, and it's the same thing with your husband or your wife. You don't say, you're a Christian, you need to forgive me. You need to ask for forgiveness, and it's up to them how they, how they do that. Secondly, forgiveness doesn't make sin any less sinful. We said before, forgiveness isn't saying that the sin doesn't matter. Saying it matters actually immensely, and I'm not holding it against you. And so if your spouse continues in sin, unrepentant, year after year, it is perfectly legitimate to treat that sin as you would treat the sin of any other Christian. That is, to take it to someone else. To take it discreetly, of course, to an elder. Tell them what's going on and try and get some light in the situation. And crucially, forgiveness doesn't make crimes any less criminal. Forgiveness doesn't make crimes any less criminal. There is no Christian virtue of not telling the truth about a crime that's been committed, even if it's been committed in your own marriage. And so it's also perfectly legitimate to bring the authorities in at that point. And now finally, verse 14. Paul uh, doesn't just tell us here to deal with the sins in your marriage. He doesn't just tell us to forgive and tolerate your wife. But more important than all of that is verse 14. And above all these, he says, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. First and foremost, we need to love. There's a reason that 1 Corinthians 13 is the most common passage at wedding ceremonies, right? And, and I wish that it was applied more in the marriage than in the wedding. Um, maybe that's one to memorize for the benefit of your spouse, 1 Corinthians 13. Because the truth is, as you put on love, all of these things actually flow out from that place. Paul says it binds everything together in perfect harmony. So your marriage isn't just being held together by a bit of forgiveness here and a bit of sin defeating here, but it's being held together by an overall love for the other person. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we love marriage. We praise you that you have given it to us. It was not the state that defined marriage, but you. And every marriage uh, is a union that is formed by you. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Lord, help us to treat marriage with the honour that it deserves, Lord. And I pray that you'd please help us as married people to work harder on our marriage than anything else, Lord. Uh, To not neglect that and go on to other Christian duties, but to actually ensure that our home is thriving first. And so I pray, Father, for those of us here who are dealing with really significant sin in our marriages, um, for those who have been sinned against, Lord, I pray that you would give a real supernatural understanding of forgiveness as we meditate on the forgiveness that you have given us in Christ, Lord. May that come home to our hearts and help us then to drive the implications of that out to forgiving our spouses. And Lord, um, to those who are in sin here, Lord, I just pray that you'd find us out. Lord, I pray that you would shine a light on the dark corners of our lives so that we can be in marriages in which we are truly known and in which we're not hiding things. And Lord, I pray uh, most of all that you would fill the marriages here at Hope with love, which binds all of these wonderful attributes together in perfect harmony. In Jesus' name, amen.